Our Lord Jesus, you stand alone, the light of the world, a light that we could never fully comprehend, but that we can apprehend and be in awe of. Lord, as the sun can burn us, Lord, may your light cause us to burn for your sake through what we hear this morning. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. The big idea this morning, plain and simple, is if Jesus is the light of the world, then we should follow his direction in every part of our lives. Every part of our lives. And I encourage you, keep your Bible open to John 8, 12 if you have one. And there is an outline in the back of the bulletin if you have a bulletin. I am the light of the world. If somebody came in here this morning and claimed that, I'd likely say, okay, this person's a wacko, or they are quite, quite arrogant. And with, with that picture of arrogance, two, two people came to mind immediately for me uh, in the news recently and then many years back. LeVar Ball, those sports fans, LeVar Ball, father of Lonzo Ball, NBA star. But LeVar Ball, who averaged a whopping two points per game for Washington State, claimed that he would have destroyed Michael Jordan in one-on-one. Picture of, of arrogance. Then go back many years before him, Muhammad Ali, who wrote the poems about I am the greatest, fly like a butterfly, sting like a all that kind of stuff, thrill him in the... I am the greatest. Story goes that one day Muhammad Ali was on an airplane. The flight attendant comes by, says, Sir, can you please fasten your seatbelt? He said, Superman don't need no seatbelt. She quickly responded, Superman don't need no airplane. <laughs> so sometimes we hear these claims of Jesus and we just kind of, ah, it's, just, it's just so out there. It's so incredible. Did, does he really mean that? But these are not quotes of arrogance. These are quotes of immense truth. Why did Jesus use them? Why did Jesus use this one? If we look at light, just the, the theme of light, go to Genesis. Let there be light. God said it, there's light. Our lives revolve around it. But soon thereafter, there's sin that darkens the light, the sin of Adam and Eve, the sin of Cain, the sin of Lamech who boasts how he would be so much worse than Cain. The world progressively darkens. The prophet Micah said, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you. The world plummets further and further into darkness, but there is hope. There is hope. When the prophet Isaiah claims for us in Isaiah 9, where he claimed that the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. And then we go forward into the New Testament. Zechariah waiting, waiting, waiting for the light to come. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, and he sees Jesus to give light to those who sit in darkness 
and in the shadow of death. Jesus, knowing these, knowing these prophecies, John 8, 12, at the Feast of Tabernacles, he arises, makes this radical claim. One of these metaphors that none, none suffice completely, but each one could be unpacked infinitely. I am the light of the world. A light that cures like a laser, that cuts, that reveals, that heals. At the Feast of Tabernacles or booths, water and light as part of that feast were important symbols. Water, Jesus is the living water, will come in one of Adam's sermons soon. But light, Jesus chose because it's late autumn, Feast of Tabernacles, the equinox there, equal day, equal night, this focus on light, the harvest of trees and vines where they're thankful for the produce that the Lord has delivered to them. As part of that festival as well, there was a festival of lights. The first night, for sure, of the Feast of Tabernacles and maybe thereafter, we don't know. But there were four large candelabras. In each of the four candelabras, had four bowls of oil. So 16 in all, a massive burning display that could effectually light, in some sense, all of Jerusalem. But at the end of the festival, the light has gone out. Jesus stands up in what's called the court of the women, showing that these temporal, temporary lights will go out, but I am the true light. And to the Jews there who oriented their lives around light, They should orient their lives around the light of the world. Jesus in the next chapter would heal a blind man, further emphasizing that he is the light of the world. So it fit for them, this illustration, the Old Testament. The Jews would get it. Judaism as a religion was good in the sense that it led one to Christ if it was followed through upon. Some received it, some didn't. Does it fit Today, for us, there are several things that are incorporated into this illustration that light provides in contrast to the world's darkness. The first would be this. Light attracts, in a good way, light attracts. It attracts even insects put on a light outside. Insects will go to it. I can remember 15 years old, Wesley Barrow Stadium, baseball game in New Orleans. We're at night, it's 8.30 at night. We have to stop the game because a massive swarm of termites comes in and just covers the lights. We have to stop the game for a minute because those termites are attracted to the light. And then they left to go feast on somebody's homes, but they couldn't because all the homes are underwater. But the light attracts, attracts. But, but going deeper, the spiritual light, Christ's spiritual light, enables us to see true reality. His light allows us to see true reality, eyes to see what is really there. As Elisha, in the Old Testament, the king of Aram, sends his army to capture Elisha, to take him. And Elisha's servant is fearful. Oh no, look, look at all this. Elisha prays for him, let him see the reality of what's out there and the angels that were there to protect them. The true reality of what is really there. 
And in the same way, we see, hopefully from the perspective of Christ, his spiritual light, what is reality for us. Yes, the circumstances that we have, the illnesses, the hardships, they may not just go away. But when we see them in the light of what Christ is calling us to in the end, that is truth that we are supposed to see them through. And thirdly, this, Jesus is the true light exposes sin, exposes the darkness of sin. The story goes of a man who's walking along the street and a a, a bus comes by, goes through a puddle, splashes the man and he looks down in the dark and he sees some specks of mud on his pants. And he walks further towards home and he comes, comes under the light of a street lamp. He says, oh no, I marked mud all the way up my pants. This is pretty bad. So he goes to his home, walks into the living room, and there in the full light, he says, I am filthy. It's gotten mud from my pants, my jacket, my shirt, all of it. In the way that we come closer to the light, closer to Christ, we hopefully see more and more of our sin. What's underneath the surface sins? What's the true sin? And more and more, it pushes us to Christ as the one who can heal. Darkness. The passage speaks of darkness where it says, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The Greek word skotia for darkness is where we get our English word skotia, a sunken molding that casts, casts a dark shadow. We take that word and we use it in our culture now. So if we consider darkness, hopefully we can appreciate the light even more. Darkness, the darkness of sin in reform circles, is very important, but not because it's reformed, because it's biblical. The Bible speaks of the depravity, the depth of our sin, when it says that none can do good, no, not one, and our hearts are deceitfully wicked. And when it speaks to that, it speaks of our thinking, our heart, or emotions, and our will. All of those are stained and affected by sin. And if we step back, we look at our culture. I was reading recently about the, the, the ten greatest minds to ever live. People like Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, those ancient Greeks, I love what they taught, this philosophy and the logic. On then to Albert Einstein and Isaac Newton and Alan Turing in the sciences and the mathematics. These brilliant men who we stand on their shoulders, the knowledge they passed along. In the arts, Leonardo da Vinci, one of the ten greatest minds. Wolfgang Mozart in music. Brilliance. And we look at history where we've come through the enlightenment in the age of reason. But now on to our era of evolution, progress, and tolerance. Our knowledge may be great, but the way we apply it is broken by sin and darkness. Ravi Zacharias captures that, in a sense, satire that he takes from a a man named Steve Turner in the Modern Thinker's Creed. And this is how they describe our culture now. 
We believe in Marx, Freud, and Darwin. We believe everything is okay as long as you don't hurt anyone to the best of your definition of hurt and the best of your knowledge. We believe in sex before, during, and after marriage. We believe adultery is fun. We believe that everything's getting better despite evidence to the contrary. We believe there's something in horoscopes and UFOs. Jesus was a good man just like Buddha, Muhammad, and ourselves. He was a good moral teacher, though we think his good morals were bad. We believe that all religions are basically the same. They all believe in love and goodness. They only differ on matters of creation, sin, heaven, hell, God, and salvation. We believe that after death comes nothing, because when you ask the dead what happens, they say nothing. If death is not the end, if the dead have lied, then it's heaven for all, except perhaps Hitler and Stalin. We believe that man is essentially good. It's only his behavior that lets him down. This is the fault of society. Society is the fault of conditions. Conditions are the fault of society. We believe that each man must find the truth that is right for him. Reality will adapt accordingly. History will alter. We believe that there is no absolute truth except the truth that there is no absolute truth. We believe in the rejection of creeds and the flowering of individual thought. And then he captures the end of where we take ourselves. If chance be the father of all flesh, disaster is his rainbow in the sky. And when you hear emergency, sniper kills 10, bomb blast school, it's but the sound of man worshiping his maker. The world's thinking fails, it's broken. But we need not point the finger only at culture and our society alone. I assure you that I am full of broken thinking, arrogance, myself. And Jesus says, I am the light. I show truth. I show truth. Further, there's something fearful about darkness. Something fearful about darkness that drives us to the light for safety. I remember years back, going home with my college roommate, hiking in the hills of East Tennessee, or Central Tennessee. And uh, we're hiking around, and Matt takes us spelunking. I didn't know what spelunking was. I didn't know what spelunking was, but we go into this cave. We descend into the cave, and Matt's the only one with a flashlight. We go into the cave a bit. Dark, dark. Matt's laughing. I grabbed on to him. I did not let him go. He put on that light. I still did not let him go until we were out of that cave. I needed outside light. The darkness drives us to the safety of light. In Matthew 22, Jesus, who was loving, spoke of the reality of hell, the weeping, the gnashing of teeth, the darkness. But in many ways, brothers and sisters, we become nocturnal. We get a little used to the darkness. We get a little hardened to the sin. We get a little too used to it. And Jesus says, flee from evil, come to the light. Not just for a little glimpse of a flashlight and flashlight tag. Come 
to the eternal light. Come completely. So the light cures the fact that Jesus cures as the light of the world. But the light also calls. The light calls us. Jesus said, I am the light, not a light. Come to me for salvation. Salvation is simple. Trust in Christ alone. Amen. But simple doesn't mean easy. Simple doesn't mean easy. We talked about how bad darkness is. What is the remedy? Jesus says here, follow me. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. The one following me will not, uses subjunctive, walk in darkness. You want to avoid the darkness, follow Jesus. You want to be out of the darkness, follow Jesus. And I can think of this. My, for my testimony, I used to say this. When I was young, growing up, I, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. But it wasn't until years later that I made him Lord of my life. And I thought of, think about that recently, just kind of chuckling. Jesus, Lord of the universe, come take a knee before me. I, Daryl, will put the crown on you to make you Lord. No, no. Jesus is not Savior if he's not Lord. Jesus, Savior, and Lord, or neither. Our Bible makes that clear. Jesus said, the one following me, a call. Answer the call. For those of you who have answered the call, why did you answer the call? Why are you following Jesus? You might say, well, he forgave my sins and I go to heaven. That's what he did. Why are you following Jesus? For the fire insurance. That may be the case. You know, that there's worse reasons than that. Be honest. Hey, I don't want to go to hell. I want to go to heaven. There's, Jesus used that to call people to himself. But hopefully, hopefully we can go a little bit deeper than that. For the believer, why did you give him your life? We go through three possible reasons so that we can be grounded further for the believer. The first, we'll call it your head. You believed the facts. You looked at things logically. The Bible is true. Jesus is true. What the world's wisdom offers pales. Look at what Ravi Zacharias did for you. You see it? You, that's, that's junk. I take the truth. For the Israelites, they would get Christ's illustration of light, pillar and cloud. Day and night, they were to follow where Jesus took them. If the Israelites said, well, you know, the pillar's going to Shechem today. I'd rather go to Gilgal. They're going to die. You follow. Your life depends on it. You believe because you see God rescuing you. They get it. Same for us today. You say, I want to go to Columbia. I say, well, go south on 77. You go, I like 85 better. You go 85, you ain't getting to Columbia. Okay? You go the right way, the one way. I can remember not long ago with travel, I have to, with work, I have to ride Uber, Lyft, taxi, that kind of thing. And the nice thing from an apologetic standpoint, you have a, you have a captive audience. 
the Uber driver, I'm, I'm going to be paying you. You're going to listen. So we got to talking, and this guy was kind of full of himself and his great wisdom, and he started to pontificate about religions, and he said, you know, all religions are the same. They're like ships, just different ships on the ocean. They're all just kind of going the same place. He pauses if nobody's ever come up with that one. Throws me that hand grenade. Woo, yeah. I said, you know, really? I don't think those ships are even on the same ocean. And, and you know, even if they are, I think they're kind of doing this. You realize what this religion says is completely the opposite of this. They're not going the same place. They're not going the same place. So for many, you believe the facts that the Bible, Jesus is the light, not a light. Nothing makes sense or has purpose without the biblical worldview. It's not saying that every question is answered. No, no, no. It's not saying that. There we will still have questions, but we know that Christ has the truth. So that may be why you head, put your faith and trust and walk and follow Christ. Another one, you may realize with the will, with the will that he deserves honor. The word there for father, for follow, akaluthio, has three pictures, word pictures to it. The first is this, a soldier following a commander in battle where the soldier realizes my commander said to take that hill. I will submit to him. He is over me. I follow what he says to do. Or the servant who serves the master, the master loves the servant, cares for the master. There is that picture as well of that type of honor. Or a one who follows a counselor's wise judgment, deserving honor from the will. In the verse that Hunter read earlier from Corinthians, for the Romans, the Romans longed for knowledge. The Greeks longed for glory. And Paul captured it when he said, let light, the light picture, shine out of darkness. Or for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You realize he is Lord. He will win in the end. Big picture of where the universe is headed. One day Christ returns. He puts the devil in hell forever. And you realize that's the Lord that I will serve. My little issues and whatever. They pale in comparison to what the Lord is doing. He deserves honor. I will follow him. And the third is this. We got the head. We got the heart. We, I'm sorry. We got the head. We got the will. Now we got the heart. His light is better and more beautiful than any of our light. I can remember years back being in, in Athens, Greece with Donna and seeing the Acropolis, the Parthenon, all these amazing things. We're up on the top of the hotel at night in the amazing lights of the city all over the place. Beautiful. But they pale in comparison to the eternal light 
of Christ that gives life. You feel that you love him. You love him because of the beauty of the light. You think of even, you go back to in chemistry, those of you, the spectrum of light, Roy G. Biv, right? Red, orange, yellow, all that. The perfectness, perfection of that light, the wavelengths of those that come together to make white, the, or pure light, Darkness is the absence of those lights. The beauty, the color, the purity of it is what Christ portrays. One Puritan years back said this, thinking of heaven, said, you know, there's no weeping there. There's streets of gold. But he said, for the first thousand years, I will stare at the beauty of Christ. And after that, I might have a look around. Because Christ and his glory and his beauty is what we're after. Anything this beautiful, this majestic, I will give him my all. I will give him my all. So the head, the heart, the will. Think, maybe a little more depth than just, I forgave my sins and I go to heaven. Why are you following him? Maybe today there's someone here who's not following Jesus, today could be your day. You think about your head. What's holding you back? Is it your head? Well, the other religions, they're just as good. They say a similar thing. Please, 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 don't don't use that one anymore. Read them. They don't agree. They don't agree. Don't use that line. Or maybe it's your heart. You don't care about the facts because in the past there was some Christian who was offensive to you and because of them, I will never take your religion. Jesus said, come to me. I'm the light of the world. Don't refuse me because of that other person. They shouldn't have done that, but I am the light of the world. Come to me, Christ says. Or it could be your will. You know in, your, in the depths, I want my way. I ain't giving up my way. I'll do it on my deathbed. You don't know when your deathbed is. Don't wait. Just as Nicodemus came to Jesus and was kind of throwing Jesus some just questions and red herrings and whatever, Jesus put it to him. Put it to him. Stop running. Quit running. Call uncle. Today is the day. We hold up Christ Simple, but it's hard. It's hard. If you're a Christian walking with Jesus for years, I dare say no one would raise their hand and say, when I came to Jesus, my circumstances in my life got easy. Just come to Jesus. It's easy peasy, happy, happy, happy. If we give that to people, uh uh-uh. That's false. That's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. But the circumstances, the hardships, the glories, become more rich, more real, more redemptive when seen with the light of Christ. J.C. Ryle puts it this way about following Christ. To follow Christ is to commit ourselves wholly and entirely to him as our only leader and savior and to submit ourselves to him in every matter, both of doctrine and practice. It's a radical commitment head, heart, will. For our youth, consider as a young person, 
Is your life any different because of following Christ? The movies, the shows, the devices, what you do with them. Is your life any different because of Christ? Show me a youth who asks for accountability. Keep me accountable to what I'm looking at. And you know that youth is mature. You know that youth has the real disease and not just the vaccine. But for the adults, materialism, climbing the ladder in the corporate world or sensual pleasures, are we as a church, Redeemer, we willing to be radical for Christ? Christ has made it simple. I am the light of the world, but it's not easy. Our following, I'm not saying our following saves us, but if we have come to the cure, to the light of the world, then the following should be a follow-through. I close with this. You may have seen the title was, The Light That Causes Us to Burn. Many years ago, two men were burned at the stake because they would not recant their faith. Hugh Latimer, Nicholas Ridley. Nicholas Ridley came from a prominent line, a line of knights. A lot of prestige in his background. But for him, as his life went along, the Bible became his sword. He longed for a focus on the truth and scripture. And because of that, he saw that the religion of his day was false. Queen Mary demanded that he recant, and he would not. He even came across John Fox, who wrote about him in Fox's Book of Martyrs. But as they went to the stake to die that day, Latimer said to Ridley, Be of good comfort, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And even as Master Ridley was being put to the stake, he said, tie it tighter. The flesh is weak. I don't want to leave my stand. So brothers and sisters, quite unlikely that we will be burned at the stake, but we are called to burn with our faith because of the light that we're following in Christ that affects every part of our lives. Would you pray with me?